Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. I'm back in America and back with the usual podcast crew. Abby, how are you? I forgot who the usual podcast cast crew was today when I was messaging people to figure out who was going to be on the podcast. I was like, who even is on this podcast? If not me and Ronan, who? I don't know. Yeah. You guys were great together. Yeah, we were having a good time. We were having a good time. Not great to ride together, but... It wasn't great to ride together? Why wasn't it great to ride together? Ronan's a faffer. He can't defend himself, so I can say it. He faffs. He is a faffer. He faffs more than Shoddy Everett, which is quite an accomplishment. I'm not going to lie. That's, like, worth a trophy, really. What kind of faffing are we talking about here? At one point, we were riding, and I turned around, and Ronan had his shoe off. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This sounds this sounds true to character. <laughs> oh yeah, that ride. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. We had some lovely rides over there. We had some lovely rides. Anyway, Dan Cash, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a little while. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to see James's garage in the back of the podcast. It's the first time I've seen that in a while. It looks clean, James. It looks clean. It's all relative. Clean is a relative <laughs> term. <laughs> And James back on the podcast for the first time in a month. Obviously, our our Tour de France dailies have wrapped up. I was going to say, I was, I've been sitting here confused. I mean, I've been showing up at the, 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 our Google link every week at the regular time. I kind of kind of just wondering what, like, where the hell everyone's been for the last month. Like, has, has there been something going on that I don't know about? The small bike race. The small bike race is happening. We were talking about it every day for 23 days. Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed our tour dailies. The, the, uh, the, the listen rates were quite high. I was very pleased. Always good to see that. Uh, pulled in more people than even last year. So they're fun to make. The Tour de France is always it's always the big show. Uh, even when it's not the best bike race, I think it's still the best bike race because it's just such a it's just such a so massive. Anyway, home now. But we are actually going to briefly discuss the Tour de France again today, as well as look ahead a little bit to the Olympics, which, well, they kick off very, very soon. By the time you download this and listen to this podcast, they'll probably be kicking off within about 24 to 48 hours. Uh, The road races essentially open the games this year. And so we're going to talk about the Olympics coming up in a little bit. But before we do, Abby, what are we learning about Continental this week? This week's episode is brought to you by Continental. The Olympics are coming up this weekend, and with riders swapping their trade team kit for national team kit, obligations of sponsored correctness get a little bit blurry. No doubt, a good number of the top men and women lining up in Tokyo will trust any of Continental's top road racing tires to get them to the finish line at the Fuji International Speedway safely and without incident, especially because... Team cars sticking closely behind isn't exactly a thing at these types of events. You need to have the right gear to ensure that you can focus on just your legs and nutrition. Take Continental's competition tire, for example. At 45 kilometers per hour, these tubeless tires have a 12-watt advantage, which equates to a four-second per kilometer, give or take, gain. Loss. Gain? Four seconds faster. Whichever one's better, Abby. Whichever one's better. <laughs> With Vectron puncture protection and black chili compound, the competition is the perfect choice if you don't want to be reminded of your tires by getting flats. Thank you to Continental for supporting this episode, and we'll announce the winners of our 
Tour de France competition soon. So you're saying I still have a chance to win? Yes. No. The competition's closed. Did you submit? I didn't know there was a competition. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> I like to win, though. I don't. I mean, I never win these things. So we I can like to- we can probably get you some tires, James. I I imagine we could probably figure that out. Yeah. I don't think he cares if he wins the tires or not. I think it's the fact that he just wants to win. I do just want to win. It, I mean, it never happens. Like you know, like you do like like you know, school raffles and that sort of thing. Like I never win anything. So it's, it's always kind of sad. I have a friend who. I have a friend who just wins all those things. He just gets all the luck. He's won like free bikes and free all, all sorts of stuff. Let's get into it. So the Tour de France. How do we feel about this Tour de France? We've now had an opportunity to kind of step away from it from a couple of days. Really think about it, digest it, consider it, perhaps put it in context in our own minds. How do we feel about this tour? Not only was it a good tour or a bad tour. I think I think you know Ronan and I got to rate it out of five baguettes at the uh, on the last stage there. But you guys haven't had a chance to rate it yet, so we'll get to that in a bit. But but just sort of generally, what were what were your sort of major takeaways from this Tour de France? Crash has, def- Crash has definitely played a very very big role in the race. Yeah, I felt like stage three. I don't want to say it ruined the rest of the Tour de France, but it certainly did a number on the rest of the Tour de France because we lost the. We didn't necessarily lose them on that stage, but they suffered injuries on that stage. Uh, the, the two riders who were probably best equipped to maybe challenge Tadej Pogacar, uh, and, and that's maybe a stretch. I, I don't know if Garen Thomas really would have, but I think Primoz Roglic might have. Uh, and, and losing him to uh, a series of scrapes and bruises and Thomas with the dislocated shoulder on stage three, it was like the GC from that point on was... I mean, there was still some action, but it, it really wasn't very close in the end. And I think it maybe could have been if, if stage three hadn't happened. And the same thing is true of the sprints. Um, the, the Cavendish storyline was great, but the sprints weren't. I mean, the, for, for the most part, Cavendish kind of dominated the sprints, except on the final day. And then I don't know that would have happened if, if Caleb Ewan hadn't crashed out on stage three. So that one day in that first week, I mean, it made for a pretty dramatic early on. But then for the rest of the race, we were, we were pretty severely impacted by the outcome. This whole Tour de France for me has been kind of this weird split between like almost complete predictability on one on one side uh, and sort of like a from a broader perspective, from a GC perspective, from from, you know, most of the sprints were relatively predictable. I think once once we realized that Cavendish was was sort of back and then on the other side, day to day kind of chaos and and never really knowing how the stages were going to end. And, you know, I, I remember sort of watching a lot of these finishes and and having the riders come across the line and being pretty excited about what had just happened, right? Something interesting had just happened, but in the, in the, in the broader scale and the, in sort of the, if you take a step back and look at the whole tour, the whole thing is very predictable. It's this sort of weird dichotomy and, and, and balance between these two things. And I think that's, that's why I'm kind of having trouble fully wrapping my head around this tour de France, because those two things have to coexist in my brain that individual stages, lots of indi- individual stages were really fascinating and really interesting. Largely, I think because the GC picture was sorted on stage eight, right? And you had a team defending that GC picture that just didn't really care whether massive groups of riders would go up the road, whether you know, uh, whether a polka dot battle would happen, whether whatever else would happen. You didn't have an Ineos sort of clamping down in the race for the next two weeks, making sure that Pogacar won. They were confident enough in his ability to do so that, that the, the, the remaining two weeks of that race were, were pretty fascinating, I think. 
I feel like the problem was that, yes, every single stage was pretty exciting to watch. I mean, a lot of the stages take, for example, stage 19. It was chaos from the gun. Like Everything was just insanity. The amount of different moves that went, the composition of each of those breaks, the race went on the entire day. A lot of the stages were basically one-day races within a stage race, but the next day the race kept going and everything reset and you forgot, you forgot what happened the day before. And that's kind of the nature of a stage race. If you're kind of hunting stage wins and stuff, a bunch of the stages were won by a bunch of the same guys. That also makes it like a little bit less exciting, I feel. But the problem with the stages all being exciting, as I was saying, is that it, it all resets the next day. And when it resets, the only thing you're thinking is about the general classification, which was boring AF. Yeah, there was no broader narrative, this Tour de France. And that, that's, that's what I keep coming back to. And I think that's the reason why I gave it two baguettes out of five the other day. Like the broader narratives didn't really exist. There, there were tons of little tiny narratives throughout the throughout the three weeks. Again, great stage wins. You know, Wild Van Aert being incredible. I mean, a, a, a sprint stage, a TT stage, and a, and a Mont Ventoux stage. Like to win all three of those, that is that's unbelievable. Uh, all these little individual stories were fantastic, and we were kind of telling those throughout the three weeks. But the there was no narrative tying the whole three weeks together. And, and that was essentially because Bogatra had such a stranglehold on the race, which kind of brings me to another bit of discussion here, which is out of curiosity. So our, our, you know, our top three, Tade Pogacar, Jonas Vingegaard, and Richard Carapaz. Where do you put Vingegaard and Carapaz on your initial GC? So if, we, if we're taking ourselves back to before this race started, before the Tour de France started, where do you put, in particular, Carapaz in terms of time behind Tadej Pogacar? Because I think that illustrates this question of dominance and how dominant Tadej Pogacar actually was, right? Because, yes, he won by a lot. He won by, what, six and a bit minutes. But if you'd asked me the week before the Tour de France started how far back Richard Carapaz would be, I would have told you like six and a half minutes, right? And so in that in that way, it's kind of completely to plan and expected. And that gap is not really all that unusual to me. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think Carpas going in seemed like the fourth or fifth favorite, but there was a very clear shelf where it was Pogaccio, Roglic, and, and maybe Thomas, but then really nobody else uh, seemed capable of, of beating that top three unless they all crashed out. And since they didn't all crash out, since only two of them did, I don't think it's all that surprising. I'm reminded of the 2014 tour in which Vincenzo Nibali ended up taking the win after both Chris Froome and Alberto Contador crashed out of the race. And that year, the situation was extremely similar. Nibali won by seven and a half minutes. I mean, you think Pogacar's win was dominant. That was a five-minute, 20-second win. Nibali won by... Almost eight minutes over Jean-Christophe Perrault and Thibaut Pinot was more than eight minutes down in third. So that was a crushing victory for Vincenzo Nibali. But again, I mean, there's no contender, there's no Froome. So when you lose, you know, the top two potential contenders that could have taken on the eventual winner, it seems like the dominance is, it's exaggerated a little bit. It's 100% exaggerated. Yeah, and, and I think that that, the dominance led to obviously lots of sort of questions in the press and and. It's, accusations of motor doping and all sorts of other things, which 
were floating around the media in the last week of the race. And, and there's lots of just sort of discussion within the press room of, of these things. And, you know, the general sense that I got that and, and keep in mind here that cycling reporters are a pretty cynical bunch. Um, but the, the general impression that I got was that most of these things that kept popping up, oh, Pogacar's got a motor in his bike or somebody else has a motor in their bike. Uh, people kept pointing at Cavendish, too, because his chain was falling off. Maybe we can get into that a bit later. <laughs> um, yeah, like the general sense I was getting from from colleagues in the press room was just that nobody really believes this stuff. Uh, and they also, within the context of of the Tour de France as a whole and the history of the Tour and previous champions, Pogacar does not feel he does not feel that unusual or that dominant relative to other riders who have felt dominant in the past. Right? He doesn't even feel that unusual compared to like a Chris Froome. You go back and you look at at at, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but like Bernardi No won his first tour by four minutes and his second tour by 13 something or 14 something. His third tour by like 16 minutes. Uh, he kept beating Yub Zotemelk by Zotemelk by, I mean, like again, 13, 14, 15 minutes. That was, that is dominance, right? That is absolute dominance. It's not really what we saw from, from Pogacar this, this race. Uh, I, again, I think, once you place it in the context of a lack of other contenders being there, uh, no egg and Bernal Roglic crashing Thomas crashing. I think it, it, the general consensus anyway, within the press room. And I, I think I agree with this is that yes, he's an exceptional talent. Yes. This is potentially the beginning of a bit of a dynasty, right? I think we could see him win quite a few more, but he is not the sort of like, just completely outside the norm, exceptional GC talent that some are were initially painting him as. Um, he just, he just, he just does not appear to be that. He's not five percent better than everybody. He's one percent better than everybody, and that's how you win the Tour de France is by being one percent better than everybody. So, not that unusual. I'd really like to see Egan Bernal take him on next year, and, and a healthy Egan Bernal, and we'll see if that actually happens because his back continues to bother him. But I think if we see Bernal versus Pogacar, it, it could go quite differently. And if we see Roglic, I mean, Roglic is starting to get up there. He's already starting to get up there by the time he kind of made it. Uh, but I think next year, if we see all of those riders actually in the race and, and not you know badly injured and covered in bandages or having back problems, then we could get a, a more entertaining race, first and foremost. And second of all, a little bit better idea of, you know, Pogacar's abilities. Because even last year, I mean, last year was really quite a close race with Roglic in it. And we still didn't have Bernal really in the fight last year because of his back issues. Um, so I think last year is a good example of how when everybody's there, things can be a lot more entertaining. Clearly Ineos going in with a fork uh, backfired on them quite a bit. Uh, you think that people would learn from watching Movistar over the years to maybe just pick I mean, one dude? I don't know how, how did it backfire, though. Like, it wasn't like them having a fork made it so that Gary and Thomas dislocated his shoulder, right? Like, if they didn't have a fork, they probably wouldn't have anybody on the podium. So at least they did something. That, that whole Ineos fork thing reminded me of the time my wife and I made the mistake of buying a whole bunch of forks from Ikea. Uh, because they were really cheap. It seemed like a really good idea. And the forks were terrible because the forks were really dull and you couldn't actually stab anything with them. <laughs> and as, 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 soon as, I start, as soon as I started seeing how the whole Ineos fork was imploding, that was the first thing I thought of. It's an Ikea R fork. It's an Ikea fork. Yep. But very expensive. A very <laughs> expensive Ikea fork. I mean, Ronan and I said this in the in the sort of wrap-up episode from the Shops uh, on Sunday. That, that I mean, for me, they were the, they were the failure of the tour. 
right? I mean, if you compare, particularly if you if you bring like budget into the equation, if you compare budget to to output, just I mean, an abject failure at the storefronts. No, no question in my mind. And a lot of it was just bad luck, right? And that that always is the case, or often is the case in cycling. But you know, Yumbo Visma had their fair share of bad luck and came out with some pretty exceptional results, regardless. Uh, Ineos seemed to revert to form, going back to their old silly riding on the front ways, and it got them absolutely nothing. So, yeah, just a, a disappointing, a disappointing three weeks from them. I think it would have been a better fight if the the rider, the riders in second and third, Vingago and, and Carapaz hadn't been riders for whom a tour podium would have meant so much. Uh, if it had been Gary Thomas up there, I think Thomas might have maybe been a little bit more aggressive just because he's been on the tour podium before. He doesn't, I mean, that's, that's not something that means quite as much to him at this point in his career. But if you're Richard Carpas, this has not happened in his career yet. A tour podium means a lot. If you're Jonas Vingago, I mean, nothing even close to this has happened before. So a, a runner-up at the tour is great. And I think because of that, we saw pretty early on both riders kind of settling for the podium and, and focusing on the podium rather than going all in for big attacks. We keep learning new and interesting things about Jonas Vingago, too. Uh, I think it was Johnny Long over at Cycling Weekly dug this one up that his, I think it was his aunt, was uh, a contestant on the Danish version of the Great British Baking Show and is like a household name in Denmark, <laughs> which is fantastic. <laughs> My wife, who is a massive fan of that, sh- the British Bake Off, is uh, was very, very pleased to hear that. <laughs> it's like we- one of the best shows ever. So, <laughs> yeah, and he's got the whole, you know, started off in a fish market uh, thing, which apparently Michael Valgren worked in the, I think, the same fish market and the same job at some point. Um, yeah, just just interesting backstory on that guy, and I think that uh, sort of the more we find out about him, the more we're going to get these little these little nuggets. I don't want to. I don't want to harp too much on just sort of like ah, was it a good tour? We've talked about this over and over and over again. We we're kind of talking about it throughout the Tour de France, but a couple other sort of just little storylines I want to I want to dig into here. How far do we think Jonas Vingago can go? Is he back next year as a tour contender, or is he given a, a role at the Giro? Because we're talking about a team that is just already chock full of of pretty incredible riders, you know. Sepp Kuss, when we talked to him on the second rest day, right after his stage win, he mentioned the fact that he'd be pretty interested in, in giving GC a go at some point. So you had another one to that to that list. What do we think? What do we think about? I mean, he's second at the Tour de France is here. Like that's a that's an incredible thing, particularly for somebody who came out of nowhere. Where where? And eh, we talked about him. He didn't actually come out of nowhere. He came out of nowhere at the Tour de France. He'd never previously done anything at the Tour de France. He never raced it. But where can he go? What do we think? Is he like, is he a GC contender for the future? Or was this kind of a one-off because essentially the big names, most of the big names weren't there? I think he's definitely a rider that can continue to thrive at this race in the future. I think the Jumbo Visma team, Stephen Kreisvik is is kind of on the down slope. Uh, Tom Dumoulin, I'm assuming, is not going to be leading the Tour de France team anytime soon. I think it's mostly Roglic at this point that, that Vingago would be kind of vying for positions with, and I wouldn't be surprised if Jumbo Visma at, in the future said, we can go in with two guys. Uh, and Vingago showed at this race, I mean, that he was the lone rider. He was the only person in this race at any point in like three weeks who put Tadej Pogacar in the rearview mirror in the mountains. And it didn't last. It was it, He didn't actually gain any time on the day, but he did do it. It did happen. And he can time trial. And he's a great time trialist. 
he he's he's got the whole package. I mean, he was third in both time trials in this race. And so I think they're not going to I don't think Jumbo Visma is going to just kind of put him they're not going to put him back in the bag. Uh he he's out. It, it's it's going to it's he's going to get his opportunities and I think I'm I'm a little nervous that they're going to just like send him to the Giro and and then we won't get to see him at the Tour next year, which would kind of be a bummer because I think they should send both him and Roglic to the Tour next year. But I I think Ringo's got a really bright future and you know, this race he was not expecting to be a GC contender. So who knows what, you know, how, how things go if he actually kind of trains and plans as if he were going to actually lead one of the biggest teams in the world at the biggest race in the world. Yeah, and just sort of return to Sep, I do think that um, if Sep actually wants that opportunity, he probably has to go elsewhere, right? Sep, he's not a particularly good time trial, so it's hard to build a real GC team around him. Um, he had to. I think he probably has to kind of pick and choose shorter stage races in in the near term, and maybe maybe he gets some opportunities like that at Yumbo. But uh, yeah, we'll see whether he actually wants to go do the GC thing or if he's just pretty content snagging stage wins. I mean, he's the kind of rider who could he could take a Tour de France stage every year for the next five years if he if he just keeps at it, right? Uh, and maybe that's enough. Maybe that's all that he really wants. But if you're looking at that Yumbo team now, particularly with with Vingigo there. I don't see a whole lot of room for him at the big major Grand Tour races. And he's admitted that he just doesn't have the um, consistency just yet to, to really to really make that work. I think we were expecting to see him get a chance at this year's Vuelta. And I think he's still going to race it. But now that Primus yeah, Roglic is, is kind of reshuffling his priorities this year, I'm, I'm a little nervous that Sepp's not really going to get his opportunity that we were expecting him to get at the Vuelta because Primus Roglic is pretty good and has won that race twice in a row well since we're ta- talking about yumbo visma already uh well fun art is he the new eddie Merckx? <laughs> because you know this is this is the new eddie Merckx is thrown around all the time right it feels like every single time we have we have uh, some incredible new rider they're the new eddie Merckx, in particular if they're belgian but this is the first time we've seen anything quite like this this is the first time we've seen somebody win a a time trial stage a Montfont two stage, which granted the scenario in that was slightly unique in that it was not finishing at the top and there was this big breakaway and, but still he dropped, he dropped all of Philippe. He dropped, he dropped lots of riders who in theory should climb better than him. And then he won a sprint stage one that one on the Champs-Élysées. Uh, he has no right to do that. He, no, nobody has any right to win on Von two and the Champs-Élysées in the same Tour de France. What, what is this guy? He's certainly the most versatile rider that I've ever, like that's been in the sport since I started following it. Uh, if you look back at the riders who are in similar kind of stratosphere and versatility, Alejandro Valverde, I think, was the, was the chief of the versatility um, for a while. I mean, he, he was the guy who could do it all in a way that could at least net him a win here and there. He, he was the you know, climbing part of the triangle, of the you know, time trial and sprint triangle. It was his best. But he could put up a really good time trial in, in a grand tour. And he could win a reduced, you know, sprint. But nobody even came really close to winning an actual bunch kick over Mark Cavendish on the Champs Elysees, and winning a time trial, and winning a Mont Ventoux stage. So it's it's he's he's like pretty far beyond the versatility of even the most versatile riders in recent years. He's kind of what I think Mikhail Kwiatkowski thought. It, it seemed like he might end up being in his early years because Kwiatkowski can do all three things, uh, but Kwiatkowski could never sprint quite this well. You can have a time trial quite this well. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't think we've seen anything like this in at least a generation. 
if not more than a generation. Well, and we didn't really get to see whether Matthew Vanderpool would be able to do the exact same thing because he pulled out of the race, right? So we've got two of them right now who are potentially like that, right? I just like how they keep going back and forth, right? They keep one-upping each other. <laughs> one, one of them will do something ridiculous and the other one will do something ridiculous. Vanderpool takes the yellow jersey for a while. Van Aert is like, okay, I'll go win three stages of the tour that have no resemblance to each other. It, it's what a time to be a bicycle fan, right? With somebody, with two guys like this, uh, just cruising through the peloton. It's pretty amazing. I, I, I just have trouble wrapping my head around it because for for decades now we've been talking about the specialization of the of the pro peloton, and you know we weren't just making that up. It's very very true that the, the pro peloton has gotten more specialized over the over the years. It, although it kind of feels like it's going the opposite direction right now. Uh, we've got a bunch of riders who are starting to do this more versatile type of. Uh, well, the ability to win lots of different types of, of, of races and more now than we've had any time in, in recent decades. And I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's the start of a trend. Maybe it's just these, these unique talents. It's really hard to tell because I can't imagine it's very rare for sports to go the opposite direction to sort of like unspecialized basically, but maybe that's exactly what we're seeing. It's really cool that we've seen Pogacar and Roglic both doing some one-day racing. Uh, Egan Bernal as well, he'll race the Italian Classics. And so there was a really long period where Liège and Lombardia were not won necessarily by Tour de France guys, mostly because Chris Froome just wouldn't race them, uh, and he won so many Tours de France. But the Liège, the last two years, have, have now been won by Roglic and, and Pogacar, and uh, in Lombardia, I think, could be won by Egan Bernal someday. So there really appears to be an interest, a, a much stronger interest now in, in one-day races for the Grand Tour guys, which I think is really cool. I wonder if it's a bit... So a lot of this this is coming from the this younger generation of riders, and I, I would actually include Roglic in the younger generation of riders, even though he's not actually younger because he's relatively new to the sport, right? I mean, he's he's the cycling equivalent of Tadej Pogacar, really. They've been riding bikes for about the same amount of time, even though he's a decade older. But this 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 it does seem to be coming from the younger generation. I wonder if it is a bit of a rejection of the champions that came before them is it a rejection of the way that Froome rode and that and that to some extent well Wiggins did Roubaix and things like that afterward but the way that Froome rode to some extent even the way that you know Armstrong rode Armstrong didn't do a lot of of races that were outside the Tour de France and he was one of the first to really kind of narrow his program down and stop looking at anything outside of of you know three weeks in July and I wonder, yeah, I wonder whether this is a rejection of that, whether this is, you know, young, very talented riders looking at the last 20 years and saying, we want to reject basically everything about this, this, these two, three decades, including the fact that you can only do these, these particular events. Uh, I hope so. I think that would be great if we started seeing, you know, the biggest champions in cycling doing all sorts of different, different races. I'm not entirely confident. And in the run-up to this Tour de France, obviously, we had Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Roglic doing basically zero racing. But historically, they've been willing to put their put their hat in the ring for all sorts of different races over the last couple of years. So maybe, maybe that's what it is. Uh, it's just a theory. I almost wonder if it's more a matter of almost just like boredom, sort of, so to speak. Because, you know, to have that sort of, to have that sort of dedication required to be that hyper-specialized would not be super fun. But if you remain, if, if you retain some level of, or some high level of versatility, you know, again, like the, the climbing, the time trialing, just, you know, just, just 
being able to do sort of everything all at once, like the bike handling in general. I mean, like, you know, Wout Van Aert and, 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 uh, and, uh, Vanderpool, I mean, uh, you know, we all know that they are, you know, huge cyclocross stars too, but the general impression that I get is that they both just enjoy riding bikes. Um, like, you know, we, we've seen a lot of people who were super high level bike racers who, when they retired, they basically just seemingly stopped riding bikes. And I don't really get the impression that these two will do that. Yeah, I think Pidcock is probably in the same category. I mean, you've got a, Tom Pidcock was racing cross country World Cups like during the tour, right? And doing well. And doing really well. And Vanderpool's racing cross country World Cups all spring. And yeah, it just seems to be a very different mindset in this latest generation than in any generation prior. And frankly, it's a really good thing for bike fans because we get to watch them more often. Uh, you know, we don't just get to watch them for three weeks uh, in July, which I think is great. Well, I think we've kind of talked tour enough here. There's sort of an infinite number of things you can talk about from the Tour de France. There's so many little storylines and things like that. But before we move on to chatting about the Olympics, we need to rate this Tour de France. Uh, Ronan's already rated it, gave it three baguettes out of five. Generous, generous. I gave it two. Uh, again, because of this sort of weird dichotomy between daily excitement and a lack of overall three-week narrative. Dane, what are you giving it? I'm going to agree with you, and not just because you're my boss. It's a two-baguette <laughs> Tour de France for me. <laughs> Explain yourself. Uh, same reasons. I think the, the GC battle, you know, without without the entertainment that Mark Cavendish's quest, you know, well, just quest back to winning, period, and then winning green and, and winning 34, that bumped it up maybe from a one. And also by Van Aert, I think, Van Aert really helped out in that department. He he kept things interesting every day, and I thought his you know his his win on the Champs Elysees for me, yeah, it kind of it really really made the tour a lot better. Uh, which is to say that I probably would have given it a one uh, without that. Uh, the the breakaways are great. I was I was really bummed by the King of the Mountains competition. Uh, we've we talked about this on this podcast extensively and on Twitter and everywhere else, uh, but it, there were a lot of days where the KOM battle was really entertaining, and then like at the very end it didn't matter because for only the second time in like a well only the third time in like a decade i think maybe even more it was like the third time in like 20 years uh pogatra just you know he won everything and so that those entertaining days in the middle weren't actually didn't mean anything which was a, a huge bummer so long story short two bad gets for me i think that's the right call obviously because that's how many i gave it abby what do you think i'm gonna go with 1.3 baguettes you, oh, you've added half a baguette since since we discussed prior. Yes, I did. <laughs> Explain because, yourself. Because I, I feel if you'd asked me, you know, 60 kilometers into stage three, I would have given it like a four baguettes out of five, the way that it was looking like it was going to go. Like the first two stages were so exciting, minus the sign crash and the other crash. But Philippe taking the first stage, Matthew Vanderpool's performance on the second stage, it was just, it looked, it was like, oh man, this is, this is going to be a really great Tour de France. <clears throat> and then I felt like with the crashes that happened on the first two days and then the third day, the crashes really set the tone for the entire race. And it was hard to bounce back after that. I was really, really disappointed in how the race handled that, how Christian Prudhomme handled that, how the UCI handled that, how, how the whole thing was handled with all of the crashing. and. Um, I, for me, I kind of 
I just, I, yeah, I just wasn't impressed. And so I think that that in and of itself kind of made the race not as many baguettes as I would like to give it. That being said, I bumped it up half a baguette because Kaylee, you made a good point. Every single day was really exciting to watch. Every single stage was super exciting to watch. So, which isn't I, always the case, which is not always the case. So it was, and there was some weird stuff too. That was just, that was just like, what, why is Ineos riding the front? What are they doing that? I feel like it is a tour de France that we will be trying to, as Kaylee said, wrap our heads around for quite a long time. I feel like, and for that, I've given it half a baguette more, but Overall, honestly, I just I I walked away from the tour like really tired and not tired of working because it's exhausting working during the Tour de France, but just tired of just something about the race is just like ugh, I think me. that was the lack of narrative, right? You know, it, yeah, there just wasn't a storyline to keep us going and, and the knowledge that tomorrow's stage would probably be an interesting one in microcosm was good and it got people coming back for sure but there was just no there was no tension throughout the whole race there's just little little bits of tension inside I mean, stages every every stage was exciting but the tour de france is a fight for the yellow jersey that's the entire that's the entire exactly. point of the race exactly and it was really clear where that was going to go quite early so yeah james do you want to do you want to rate it were you watching <laughs> I'm going to rate it no baguettes because mostly what I was doing the, during the tour was baking bread and eating it. <laughs> you ate all of the baguettes that you ate all the baguettes. In. All the baguettes are gone. <laughs> well, there you have it. So I think, I think uh, on average here, we're somewhere around a two, around a two out of five baguettes, which seems, seems, seems right. Today's tour recap was brought to you by Forefront Corp. Forefront Corp is a tech consulting firm focused on providing Salesforce platform solutions for high-tech manufacturing and life sciences. With over 25 years of experience and implementations in more than 70 countries, working with Forefront will put you in the yellow jersey for your Salesforce project and keep you, hashtag, at the forefront beyond the Champs-Élysées. Forefront, headquartered in New Jersey, is seeking new talent to join their team. If you are driven to stay ahead in the breakaway, check out Forefront Corp dot com slash tdf find out more and apply today that is forefrontcorp.com slash tdf for f-o-r-e frontcorp.com slash tdf as a side note uh some of our Vela club members are working over at forefront and seems like a great place to work <laughs> go check it out forefrontcorp.com slash tdf and thanks to forefront for sponsoring today's episode should I take the fact that we are that we have a mid-roll sponsor from a company that seemingly has nothing to do with cycling specifically as a sign that the podcast is doing well? <laughs> In general, yes, I think. Uh, but also, this one specifically came from uh, a Velo Club member who's looking to to hire like-minded folks, and figured like-minded folks would probably listen to this podcast. Okay, so, yeah. You'll know we've made it when we're sponsored by like Headspace. Or, or like Uber, uh, Better Help, or one of those. Those are all the big podcasts are sponsored by them. Yeah, we're not there yet. ZipRecruiter, Google, yeah. Facebook. Yeah, they sponsor NPR. Mm. Wow. We could be I, sponsored by Google. Just say we are. 
Do you need to Google something? Hey, Google. Head to Google.com and Google it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thank, thanks to Google for not really sponsoring this episode. Do you have a question? Head to Google.com. Type in your question. The internet has answers. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> All right, let's get into the Olympics. So it is currently Thursday at about 10 o'clock in the morning here in Colorado. That means that the Olympic, the men's Olympic road race is two and a half days away. Am I doing that math correctly? It's less, than, less that. than that. It's like one and less a half day away. One it's and like, a half days away. Yeah. It's real soon. So... Hopefully you listen to this episode before the race actually happens. Uh, what what do we need to know? What should we start with the men's race or the women's race? The men's race is first chronologically, right? I think we'll start there. So what the the courses of the two are are very slightly different. Um, very slightly different. <laughs> they're very they're they're different. <laughs> one is really hard, one is less. <laughs> um, for reasons unknown. Uh, anyway. A bunch of the, the real contenders for the Olympic road race, uh, particularly the men, well, only on the men's side, just came from the Tour de France. Uh, a lot of a lot of riders were flying out of Paris literally on Sunday night. They were so the the the, the race ends quite late on the Champs Elysees on Sunday and and around like six or seven o'clock, and they were literally on flights at like nine or ten, um, changing, getting on a plane, flying to Tokyo. Those riders are all now on the ground. We've been seeing lots of Instagram posts and things like that of, of Mount Fuji. A fair number of riders also left a bit early. We saw Vanderpool leave early. We saw Mike Woods leave early. Riders are clearly taking, obviously, the Olympic road race very, very seriously. Uh, but where, where, let's start with, a, let's start with a, a, a route preview, Dane. What are we looking at for this Olympic road race this year? And, and maybe kind of put it in context with Rio, which was a really hard Olympic road race. Um, but this one's kind of hard in a slightly different way. So compared to Rio, I mean, both courses are pretty climber friendly. Uh, Rio was a bit more of a, well, there, there was a sort of a, a race of two halves. There were some punchy climbs early on and then a harder, but still punchy climb that they did three times, uh, towards the end. The Tokyo road race, this is very hard, similarly quite hard, uh, longer climbs, uh, just grueling, tougher climbs. So the race is 234K, so it's not short. And there's sort of a long climb, the, the Doshi Road climb, it's, it's the first big thing they're going to do. There's the short and steep Kagosaka Pass, which comes after that. And then they're going to go partway up Mount Fuji, uh, which is a pretty big mountain. And that's going to be a, a pretty hard climb. And, and, and that's just going to, to differentiate from Rio. I mean, the, the climbs in Rio, they they got up to you know, 500 meters. Um, and of course they're starting from basically zero. Uh, and in Tokyo and the environs of Tokyo, really where they'll be racing, uh, Mount Fuji is, they're going to get up to 1400 meters. Uh, so it's a really quite a significant climb. They're going to be going up. Uh, and then after that, there's a sort of a respite for a bit. And then a kind of a double whammy at the end, the very steep and challenging Makuni pass. And then the short, but steep, uh, Kagosaka pass, once again, and then they will descend down to the finish at the Fuji International Speedway. So if the race is still together, there is a possibility of a reduced sprint at the end there. Uh, but for things to stay together, that means that people are going to have to stick together over, uh, like I said, the Makuni Pass, which is, which is tough. It's 6.5K, 
with an average in the double digits. Uh, so that's not something that tends to be very kind to a, a bunch kick. Uh, so hard race, and I think a race that's a little more suited to kind of long haul climbers, I guess, than than the Rio race was, where there were some punchy climbs and, and allowed a rider. I mean, we did have Vincenzo Nibali and Rafael Mike, a really good long haul climbers. Uh, looked like they might be on their way to the victory in that race. So they, they were up there before they crashed. Uh, Greg Manavima took the win. I think that shows you that it was a hard race, but maybe not. Yeah, there, there weren't any big mountains that they went over. It was just these these short, steep climbs. Well, this is this is back in a, in a, in a Van Avermaet era when he was a lot more versatile, I think, than he is now. I mean, he, he also won some pretty mountainous, like, Tour de France stages back in the day. So not super unusual. But yeah, I mean, that Rio course, I think that climb was just over 20 minutes for for the men. Um, so long and hard, but not, not 40 minutes, right? A, a bit, a bit, bit of a different animal there. Um, how far is it from top of the last climb down to the finish at the speedway? It's like 20 ish, uh, K something so, in that ballpark. So going solo is unlikely. Probably. Probably. It depends on how selective the race is. And, and there are some really good riders, really good climbers that are going to be in good form at this race that could make it selective. Uh, and if that's the case, then it's I, it, I think it is possible because it's hard to catch somebody on kind of undulating roads towards the finish like they're going to have. Um, I think it's possible that, that somebody gets away. The other, the other sort of dynamic at the Olympics every four years is the fact that, well, five in this case, is the fact that the teams are quite small. And that makes it really, really hard to control. Basically impossible to control. The bigger countries, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, the bigger countries have larger teams. The smaller, uh, basically countries with fewer UCI points have smaller teams. Um, which means that, like, you know, the Dutch, the Belgians, the French, they're going to they're gonna bring big squads. Uh, I think the U.S. is on, or do we have three or four this year, Dane? Three? Two? I thought it was Two? two. Anyway, we don't have very very many UCI points, <laughs> but yeah, the sort of smaller cycling nations end up with with smaller teams, and and that basically makes it impossible for any of the smaller cycling nations to, to fully control the race, and even really difficult for the Dutch, the Belgians, and the French to 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 control a race like this, which, given the difficulty of the course, means that it's just a little bit less predictable, right? Uh, should be some great racing, I hope. My prediction for that one: small group sprint, six guys maybe. Uh, coming in together, and somebody with a good kick takes takes gold. I think it's hard to look past Waffen Art, honestly. Uh, Matthew Vanderpool, Mike Woods as a bit of a dark horse. I think there's who are the other sort of contenders that we're talking about. Well, Slovenia's got a pretty good team because Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Roglic are both there, and I think that is the big question: if one of those guys attacks on one of the two final climbs, can anybody do anything about it? Uh, Belgium. You know, they obviously have a strong team. Belgium always has strong riders. They're going to have Wafan Art. They're going to have Remco Evenepoel. But can either of them chase down an attack on double-digit gradients by Pogacar or Primoz Roglic? I don't know about that. So that's going to be the big question. If they do, then it seems like Wafan Art's in a prime position to grab a, an Olympic gold medal. But that's a tough, tough ask. We have a question. We had a question come in from a fellow club member, I believe. Uh, shout out to us. Emailed it to me and also sent it to us on uh, on Twitter. Sam Fritz asks, I think about this every year, the world champs, and again at the Olympics. Why is team sized based on national dominance? Belgium, Italy, Colombia, five. Australia, GB, Germany, four. 
New Zealand two. Imagine the Football World Cup allowing Brazil to bring a team of 30. <laughs> Which is, he makes a good point. So, so I actually don't really know the answer to this other than they're trying to reward con- countries that do more UCI races and, and win more UCI points. And generally, probably it allows those countries to bring more big names. I think that's probably also kind of the point is that the, the nations in question, you have a lot of big names from your country, then, you know, it behooves the Olympics or the world champs to allow you to bring all those big names to the race. Whereas if you don't have a lot of big names in your country, you won't have as many points. They don't really care whether you bring a lot of riders to the race. So I think that that's roughly the reason why is it, it basically, it just, it, it creates a better spectacle. It allows, it allows teams to, you know, allows Belgium to bring all of their superstars or Italy to bring all of their superstars. Uh, and you're not really like super concerned as to whether, well, little old United States, for example, uh, is allowed to bring all of our superstars because we don't really have very many. And if you're going to allow team tactics, if, if you want there to be teams of multiple riders in the race, you, I think you kind of have to do something like this uh, because it maybe it sounds counterintuitive, but this allows the U.S. to send at least two riders instead of none uh, because they have to cut off somewhere. If the, if the alternative is like every big country gets five riders and then there's only 15 teams in the race or 20 teams in the race or whatever. If you want to allow a few more teams to participate, you have to have this system where, okay, Liechtenstein, you get one rider. You know, San Marino, well, they probably get no riders. But teams, you know, countries that are tiny, that have very small populations or that are not big players on the cycling stage, they at least still get to be involved, period, with this system. And the alternative is either no teams at all. Every, you know, it's just like qualifying is purely based on talent, in which case you probably get like, a hundred Belgian riders and you know fifty Italians and then no Americans, uh, or you have only Belgian, Italian, Spanish, French, you know n- n- uh, Dutch, British riders, or you have the system where it's tiered, where yeah, at least we get two riders from America, at least you get one rider from this tiny country that doesn't have much of a presence on the cycling stage, and it kind of seems silly, but I think maybe counterintuitively, this is kind of the only way to give those smaller countries some kind of representation. Right, because otherwise we the Olympics would basically just be a recap of the European Championships. Yep. So there you go. That's our that's our answer. That's uh that's obviously not straight from the IOC. That's just based off of what we're what we're sort of presuming are the reasons why. And I don't know if anyone's ever really fully explained that. It's just it's been that way for a very long time. So let's move on to the women's road race, which happens. I believe is it twenty four hours or forty eight hours after the men's race. 24 hours after. Tokyo time is just confusing my brain. I shouldn't because we work on Aussie time all the time. It's not that far off, but anyway. <laughs> well, 24 hours after. 26 hours after. Right. Okay. 26 hours if we're after being the specific. men's race. Yeah. The women's race will kick off. Abby, uh, we alluded to this earlier, but the course is slightly different. Ooh, yes. It is my opinion that the course of the women's race is far superior to the course of the men's race. Honestly, there was a lot of controversy about how the women don't get to do Mount Fuji, and I'm I'm here for it. The course is absolutely brutal. It's really like up or up down, up down, up down. A lot of I talked to a secret inside source. She said there are, and I quote, walls. So it just is a constantly rolling course until they go up Doshi Road, which is like a valley climb that stair steps and really only get steep in the final two kilometers. And then they go around a lake and they go over the 
Kogosaka, Kogosaka Pass. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry to people listening. Um, and around a lake, and after that, they descend, and it's super technical descent, really, really steep and technical. And then they get to the motorway where they do laps, and again, the motorway is really punchy. There are a lot of punchy, steep climbs in it. It is there's no flat. There's no flat on the entire course. So basically. It's going to be like a spring classic. I'm thinking maybe Amstel Goldie kind of race, Flesh Malone kind of situation, but with one massive climb thrown into the middle of it. Uh, it's a race of, get this, 67 riders. So real weird racing dynamic. Um, just like with the men's, you know, there are uh, four, four or five teams with four riders, and after that it just kind of, Less and less riders. So Lizzie Dagnan, who's a hot favorite for the race, only has one teammate, which makes makes her winning the race like a lot harder than if she'd had two teammates. Um, but it's going to be a race of attrition, and I see this either being one rider winning it or a group of six to eight with uh, someone sprinting to victory. Either enemy Van Vluten or a group of six to eight is what you're saying? So, yeah, well... In either either of those scenarios, it's either Annemiek van Vluten solo or Anna van Bregen solo or Mariana Voss or Demi Vollering winning out of a bunch sprint. So honestly, it's impossible to look past the Dutch. I, I, I really, I would love to be optimistic and be like, yeah, of course, like Cassini Doma has a shot. Of course, like Cecily Uterbloedwig, if she if she can like throw down an attack on one of those. Like say on the the climb around the lake, like I would like if she can stay away. Oh, I would love to see Lisa Brenauer factor in the sprint. But honestly, if we're being honest, if we're being completely honest with ourselves and with the world, <laughs> the Dutch are going to win. The Dutch are going to win this race. It's a matter of which one of them. Exactly. Well, you've put your stake in the sand there, Abby. I mean, they have four different riders, for, but literally they have two riders for any possible race scenario. And the argument that their downfall will be that they're all winners doesn't really work because that's how they race every single world championships and they win more world championships than they lose. So, in fact, they went 1-2 in the last world championships, didn't they? So, so there you have it. And these... um for our North American listeners or anybody in these sort of American time zones, North or South America, the races are quite late. Uh, I think like midnight starts at midnight here in, here in Colorado. It's the men's race is 4 a.m. and six and the women's race is 6 a.m. Central Eastern time. Central, Central European time. Sorry. It's like Central, Central, Central Eastern European time. time. <laughs> So yeah, late late evening here in any American time zone. Uh, so a bit bit tricky to watch, but it'll just you know it'll make us feel like our Australian friends always feel trying to watch the Tour de France at like one o'clock in the morning. So should be some spectacular racing, and we'll be back uh, on Monday to sort of talk through what happened. There's a lot of other cycling obviously happening at the Olympics, and so we'll have a couple. Maybe extra episodes throughout. We've got mountain biking coming up. We've got lots of track events. We're going to do a little what is track racing (laughs) discussion at some point. Uh, 
this all you know it's one of those things where i think most people don't really watch track racing more frequently than every four years so we'll just go through it and explain what everything is and how you win it and how you lose it and what works and what doesn't um yeah we'll get to that maybe in next week's episode also if you want like a full discussion about the olympic uh road race for the women Check out the Freewheeling Podcast. We had the lovely Gracie Elvin join us for this week's episode, and it was fantastic. And we really did a deep dive into the course and also the competitors. So if you want to hear more about that, head on over 13 there. 13 out of 10 would recommend. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. All right, that's Nerd enough alert. Olympics, I Nerd think. As Abby said, go check out Freewheeling if you want even more from the women's race. James, you've been sitting here patiently. What's our nerd nugget for today? It's a small one, actually. I just want to point out to everyone that despite the fact, we're going to go back to the tour just briefly, uh, despite the fact that Tadej Pogacar did not use a disc brake bike for every stage of the Tour de France, he used them for nearly every stage of the Tour de France. So I don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> I just don't. I'm done. I, I mean, I like rim brakes. I do. Kaylee, I know you like rim brakes too. Yes, they work fine. I'm done talking about it though. I, I think I think this is basically just it it already was the beginning of the end, but I think now this is the end of the end. What was he riding on the shops? Was he on discs? Did he win the Tour de France on discs? That's the real question for me. Oh, oh. I'll I'll That's go a, look. I'll look. Well, what was the day that the day that he won like took the majority of the time? And he so didn't really he win until he crossed that finish line in Paris. So he, for me He took the majority of his time on disc breaks. Um, that was that, uh, Le Grand Bornon climb, but in later mountain stages, he switched to rim brakes. So switch back and forth a little bit. He did. He did. And he was also on rim brakes on his TT bike because yep. it's Colnago and Campagnolo and yeah, but, uh, it, I'm, I'm done. We're disc not going to anymore. He crossed the line on the Champs-Élysées on disc brakes. I'm looking at a photo right now. So you can therefore draw the very, very concrete and logical conclusion that he won the Tour de France because he was on disc brakes. Yep. Foregone conclusion. <laughs> I don't want to hear anything about, you know, causation and correlation. Like it's 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 done. Uh I, I'm giving it I'm giving it to disc brakes anyway. I mean he was he was on disc brakes for most stages. There's only a couple where he wasn't. And yeah, he seems to like him. He seems to like him. He does seem to like him. These young whippersnappers, am I right? Indeed. Right. All right, so there you go. The Tour de France has officially been won on disc brakes for the first time, we should say. That's why we're bringing it up, because it has never happened before. Even though discs have been floating around the peloton for close to a decade now, this is the first time they've won the Tour. Mostly because Ineos hates them, and they've won most of the Tours in recent memory. All right, that's it from us today thanks for joining on our sort of random late end of the week episode we will be back as normal next monday to chat through the olympics and well anything else has happened in the world cycling thanks for listening everybody bye-bye bye-bye